can smell it. hear comments that we're a masculine group and they love to hear the men so speak up we're positioned perfectly and i'm glad for that so it is uh the ninth portion of the year uh there are 12 in uh, breshit in uh, genesis and i'm trying to memorize the names of the 12 to be able to tell the story of genesis breshit and so on so I challenge you to be able to tell the story using the names of the portions because you should be able to just kind of kick it off, right? The toughest part is knowing what the portion title actually means. So, mm. we can do that. Any, uh, anything that we need to know about? Any other things? Light one candle. One candle is lit tonight. Actually, you're going to light two candles, Havdala, right? Please. Right? Yeah. So, you're going uh, to light your Havdalah candles and then you'll light your Shamash. 
and then you'll light one candle, right? Okay. Anything else? We hope Scott gets better. And uh, I can't think of anything else, Joshua. Can you? If you have a dreidel, you should spin it. We're doing the dreidel thing. If you don't, you should get one. That's right. You should get one. Funny story. What's the downside? Woman, woman in my office. I overheard a conversation. Her son is five, six, seven, something like that. She, he comes home one day from school. They had some holiday day. You know, mom, mom, where's her dreidel? We don't have one. Why not? <laughs> it's a good question. That's great. That's great. Yeah, this is a good time of year to just keep extra dreidels in your pocket, in your coat. <laughs> so you can, that's right. Well, just in case you might need to study Torah randomly, that's right. some like Greek guy will walk by. That's right. Yeah. All right, Joshua. Or Hawaiian. <laughs> lead, uh, lead this for us, if you would. Okay. Um, or Indonesian. Raise your hand as we go along. Okay, so. Um, all right, let's get started. I'm going to sit here in the midst of you. He's a man of the people. That's totally fine. Um, you can always throw, throw things at my head. Oh, it's just fine. Yeah. That was Morgan. She said it's just audio. It's just audio. <laughs> I just want to say that it does me very, very well to see the man sitting on the couch here. And he's not a little guy. Either. No, no, he's not. He's definitely not. He's definitely not. He's got a great hat. If we can only look half as cool as he. I know. Amen. Amen. Every time. out to God's ears. Every time. I mean, so um, when I get kick-started here, I'm going to try to, like, I'm going to have a little moment to talk to the kids about some things. And by kids, I mean people who are below bar mitzvah age, because they're not really children, let's be honest. If I've never been I know, right? No, yeah. So, Mike, I have a question for you. Is there a son today? No. Yes. How do you know there's a son today? Can you see the sun? No. But how do you know? Because there's light. Because there's light. Because you see the effects of the sun. But you don't see the sun. Right. So Joseph, in his story, has some very sad things happen to him. Why? Because people were mean <laughs> to him for no reason. It's a good question, Sophia. You know what? And I think Joseph was asking the same thing. Why is this happening to me? And you know what? It, Sophia, when you get in trouble, do you sometimes have to go um, have time out? She does. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. But you know what? Joseph had to go in a very, very, very long time out for many years in a very dark place, and he didn't even do anything wrong. It was really not very fair. But what's really interesting is that while Joseph is having this very difficult time, it'd be very easy for him to think that, like, the sun is not there, that God is not there. He can't see God, and it doesn't really feel like God is taking care of him. But you know what it says in the Bible? It says over and over again in this parasha that Hashem was with Joseph. In fact... This parasha uses that phrase, I believe, more than any other parasha up until now, over and over and over again. So when all of these terrible, sad things are happening to Joseph, what is true? Hashem is with Joseph. Just like the, there's a sun today, even though we can't see it, we can see the effects of it. Joseph was constantly being taken care of by Hashem. He, was, he could see God taking care of him. Even sometimes when things were not going the way he wanted them to, God was still in charge, and God still loved him. And in the end, we see at the end of the story is Joseph figures this out. 
we'll find out in a couple of parashah, that even though Joseph did not, his brothers were not very nice to him, Joseph forgave them because he knew that what had happened was what Hashem wanted. And Hashem always does things good. Amazing. And I think it's really cool to think about the idea that Hashem is with them. I mean, that phrase just shows up over and over again. The other phrase that shows up over and over again is um, by he, and it was. Which um, the, I believe is the sages in the Midrash talk about this idea that by he almost is almost like a coincidence, like, and so it happened. But it's over and over and over again because it's not coincidence. Throughout the whole thing, it's happening on purpose. Uh, Joseph is meant to go through these difficult things. Joseph is meant to have these sad things happen to him because God has a plan, and it was good. Um, Julianne and I were, were talking some last night about. Um, a really interesting reality involving fruit. And I'll get to that in just a second. So this week's parasha is titled Vayeshev, which means that he dwelt. And the, the parasha name is completely in, incompatible with the parasha. Because Vayeshev implies permanence, dwelling. But poor Jacob has the absolute opposite of that happen here. He loses his first, uh, his, his most loved son, Joseph, to Egypt. Thinks he's dead. His Next, like, top-of-the-line type son, not his actual firstborn, but the one he was end up making the leader, so to speak, is Judah, he disappears for, like, years, leaves the family. Uh, Joseph's ha- or Jacob's having a very rough stretch here, and the sages point out that Vayeshev was almost like this idea that, like, he felt like, now now things have calmed down, you know? I got past Esau, I got past Laban, the Dina situation was rough, but now things are going to be okay. And, and um, Rashi quotes Hashem almost like saying, like, what, like, Got the world to come for you, Jacob. But right now, things are not necessarily going to be easy. Um, but the reason for that, of course, is that God has a plan. We're talking about Joseph. Like, God's taking, doing the right thing with Jacob. It's not that Jacob, it's hard on Jacob, but this is good. And I think that the example that we came up with last night is that of limes. So I learned last night, for the first time, Juliana asked a very good question. Why don't limes have seeds? This is a very good question. Because every other... Uh, fruit and vegetable, or almost everyone, has some sort of seed. That's how they reproduce. So I did some little research. I immediately had to look it up online, because that was important. <laughs> I did some research and found out... Alexa. No, no, no. We went, we went, we went, I am still telling my computer what to do. It's not telling me what to do. So I, um, I uh, looked it up. And interestingly enough, turns out that a lot of limes you get in the grocery store are seedless. And therefore, they are extremely rare in the wild. These limes only exist because people plant them. And that means that these limes only exist because we like margaritas or, you know, <laughs> that we want limes in our, in our guacamole or whatever. They only exist for people to eat them. That's their whole reason for existence. Their people make them, and they have no other reason to exist other than people make them. And then people eat them because their whole purpose is to serve the creator who made them. And that's really the way it is for us. Um, Julian and I decided that the way to title this concept is the purpose driven line, which is to say <laughs> that, um, <laughs> that, the, um, that the purpose, the reason for human that's existence, silly. right? <laughs> I can see it now, it's a lime tree in the cover. But anyway, um, the purpose of, the, of our existence is to serve a creator. We only exist because he chooses for us to exist. If it were not for Hashem, none of us would be here. And therefore, our entire purpose for being here is to serve him. That's the only reason we're here. And that's what's going through with happening to Jacob and to Joseph in this parasha. Their only reason to exist is to serve Hashem. At times, that was very painful and very difficult. But that's why they're there. 
that's what they're supposed to be doing. And in the end, I think ultimately Joseph gets that. I think Jacob does too. But Joseph, we know, he gets that picture. He understands this was for a reason. And he was okay with that. And I think we have to be too. Yes, sir. I think Joseph, since the title is Vaishim, I think Joseph probably understood Vaishim better than any of the other sons uh, because he asked to be buried there. Hmm. When you look at it, the first verse is really, I mean, it's filled with such irony, it's really amazing. It says, Yaakov lived in the land of his father, Yitzhak's sojourns. Mm-hmm. Yitzhak never left the land. And he lived there permanently all of his life and is buried there. And yet Jacob is says lived in the land of his father's sojourns and he's the first son that had left. Mm-hmm. It's 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 the the irony and this is why it's named that's why we keep calling it Vaishev is not just because it's this is the first verse is because J- Jacob chose to make it the place of his <coughs> that he was promised it chose to make it the place that he lived. Mm. It was where his life would be. And uh, and then of course then immediately goes into the generations but it says in the land of Canaan. Joseph his most beloved son recognized that and that was his dying request is bury me in the land of my father mm-hmm. absolutely I think it's interesting that the story we know this is not new but oftentimes we'll see these passages these are the chronicles of these are the generations of so and so and then the next word is somebody else's name which is kind of funny um, that happens in a couple of places but this one stands out um, because Joseph is not the firstborn Joseph is the point of, feels like the point of the story we are now introduced to the antagonist well, last night, Juliana points out, but wait a minute. The entire chapter 38 is not Joseph. It's Judah. it's Judah, which is weird. It almost feels like if you didn't have the parasha ended after chapter 38, you would think, oh, well, that Joseph situation just didn't work out. He had, he had these dreams. He got sold into slavery. And then that was the end of Joseph. And the story ends. Because that's what it feels like. It's like all of a sudden we're introducing Judah, brand new character. It's like one of those movies that has like 18 people who are famous in the movie. And so, like the first, the first scene is character number one. You think this is the anta- this is the protagonist, and the next scene is the other famous guy. And you're like, maybe they're the protagonist. And then somehow, in the end, they all end up in the same room together. You know, that's kind of basically what happens here. So we have multiple protagonists, which is unusual for the Torah because up until now we've always had one. It's always been these are the chronicles of Adam. Adam had all these kids. It's all about Adam. This is the this is what happens with Noah. It's all about Noah. And this is what happens with Abraham. This is what happens with Isaac. Even when we have multiple people in the story, Jacob and Esau, it's about Jacob. Esau is a, he's a secondary character. Best actor, but he's not going to win the top line. Supporting, supporting actor, excuse me. Right. But in this case, um, uh, in this case, Joseph and Judah are together as like forms of protagonists. And I believe that that's the case because Joseph and Judah represent the, com- the complete realization of the people of Israel. Yep. They are the northern tribes, they are the southern tribes, they are the um, they are they are the two ways that God expresses himself um, in his people. Judah representing the monarchy and, and 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 that on all of the kind of the regalness of it. But then Joseph representing a different form of strength. Joseph represents a, a form of leadership and yet at the same time there is even like a willingness of subservience in that leadership. Joseph representing a form of Messiah, but Judah also kind of has elements of Messiah. Anyways, you see this beautiful combination, and I think that even just in the way the parasha is structured, God is emphasizing these two men and their descendants will have equal roles in my people. 
His, uh, your daughter want to say something? She, she has a question about the brothers. Okay, we'll ask that question in just a second. Yeah. Come back to you. Yes, sir. We can take her question. Oh, what's your question, Masaya? Um, why were his brothers jealous of him? That's a very good question. Does your daddy love you and your sister and brother the same? He does, because he's a good father. I knew I could ask that question in front of him. But I know you what a relief. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> but see, Joseph's family wasn't quite that way. His daddy loved him more than he loved the other brothers, and they could see that. It did not make them happy. So they were very jealous because they wanted their dad to love them the same, or maybe more. And that was not good. So it's important to remember that when you have kids, Masaya, someday in the very long distant future, yeah. you, you should make sure to love all of your children the same and, and treat them that way. You know, it doesn't mean you always give them the same things, but you treat them, you love them the same, you let them realize that. Yes, sir. Good question. So, yeah, great question. Uh, so, yeah, Joseph was the beloved of his father. Right. And, and so there's a lot of, obviously, connotation there, but... Good looking. <laughs> well, actually, it's funny you say that because one of the one of the uh, reasons Hazal say that Yaakov favored Yosef <laughs> is because Yosef was a spitting image of his father, hmm. which is also pretty cool because good looking guy. Yeshua <laughs> said, "If you've seen me, right. you've seen wow. That's cool. Very nice. Right. And Yeshua is the beloved of." Nice. But actually, picking up on some of your comments, this portion is one of the first places that the sages um, begin to see, the, begin to develop the concept of Messiah ben Yosef and Messiah ben David. Because what you have here, why is the story, why is this portion all about Joseph and Judah? Because from both of them could have come Messiah according to Chazal, and in fact, in one way, they, that's true, that's true, because... <laughs> Joseph ben Judah ends up being the father of Messiah. Because we know, obviously, with uh, help from the Apostolic writings, that both Messiahs are fulfilled in one person, they're not two different people. Right. But, but both of them had the uh, potential to bring forth the messianic line. In fact, when you get into the book of Kings where we you know you get past the judges and we get into the kings of Israel, when the king when the kingdom is split into the northern and southern kingdom and Jer Jeroboam becomes the first king of the north, there's a prophecy given to him that he that he would rule over Israel and that his that his throne would be eternal. Huh. Just like the same promise that was given to David. Except he says, you won't rule over Judah, but you're going to rule over all the rest of Israel, but you're not going to rule over Judah because I've already promised David that his throne will be eternal in Judah, but there's a pro there was the same promise basically given to, to Jeroboam who represented you know, um, the Ephraim and the, and the northern kingdom. <clears throat> so Hazal say both Joseph and Judah had the potential to bring forth Messiah, and this is where they start to develop that idea that there's there's two Mashiachs. Um, it's interesting that, that the portion starts, where are they located? They're in Hebron. Mm -hmm. 
So Jacob is in Hebron because that's where his fathers ultimately kind of are buried, right? And they're buried there. Well, <clears throat> where's the first place that David had oh, yeah. his kingdom? It was not based, his first his first kingdom when he first became king was not based in Jerusalem. It was based in Hebron. Right. He represents obviously Messiah ben David. Where does the father send his son to? Where does Yaakov send Shechem. Yosef? To Shechem. Where Shechem? Shechem is in the north. It's in, it's, it's in the territorial domain of Ephraim. Uh, and so <coughs> there's no consequence here that you know, we start in Hebron, which is connected to Messiah ben David. He sends Yosef to Shechem, where his, his brothers are, or where he thinks they are. And he sends Messiah ben Yosef to check on his brothers and bring me back a report. How are they doing? It really sounds a lot like that parable. The vineyard sends his son to go check on the people taking care of his stuff. Yeah. Also, I think gives us some insight as, as, as to why Yeshua, you know, we can count on one hand the number of interactions he has with non-Jews. Right. Because the father sent him to check on his brothers. Right. And, and we've seen on Tuesday nights over and over again, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Here we see in verse 16, the guy says to Joseph, what are you doing here? I am seeking my brothers. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's very cool. And what does the man say? They've gone away. They've gone astray. They've gone astray. That's exactly mm -hmm. right. So it's, it's an amazing parable. Oh, it's going to... Um, I'm going to keep this moving, but feel free to jump in with any comments as we go, because we're going to eventually want to make it to the to the hot star sooner or later. Don't talk about. Don't talk. Don't talk. Don't talk. Go ahead. Apparently, you talk two wells. Sorry. I was going to I was going to move over to um, I noticed something this year looking at Judah's story in chapter 38 um, that Judah has. I think it's interesting to see who names who. And if you look at Judah's three sons, he does not name the second, the, the last two. He only names the first one. He names Er, and then it says that his wife names the second, uh, Onan, and the third one, um, Shelah. And I think that it's interesting because um, I think that that should emphasize to you how Judah's feeling at this point. And I think Judah, does, Judah gets a bad rap a lot of times. I think Judah's reaction to everything that happens here is mostly pretty good. Okay, yes, the whole... Tamar thing was a massive mess, but up until that point, he's actually doing pretty well. He he his firstborn son that he names, well, I think he must have meant something to him, dies, and he doesn't even seem to be he doesn't flinch. His immediate reaction is, okay, Onan, you have to marry Tamar because that's what we're supposed to do. His first thought is, what's the mitzvah to do here, which I think is impressive. I think that should stand out. Later, um, it's also interesting to me too that like of course Judah, we, we get the parallel with the. Identify if you please line, which is like what happens with Joseph and Jacob. So it's sort of like Judah's having a measure for measure moment here. Judah is how he treated Joseph and his father Jacob. He's having the same thing happen to him. But actually, this I think it goes beyond that because in some ways Judah is experiencing the same grief his father is experiencing. He loses his firstborn, and then what is he obsessed with at the end? Why does the whole mess with Tamar happen? Because he's trying to protect his youngest. Because his youngest becomes sort of the heir to the throne, so to speak, and that's what he's that's his focus now. Um, I also think it's interesting that at the end of the story, who names Perez and, and Zara? It's 
Jacob, or not Jacob, Judah. Judah, it's like Judah has like, it's like he's taking ownership of this. Not that he, not that he really wants ownership of the whole situation, but he, the sense that like he's like, um, I don't know. To me, it almost feels like a replacement of sorts. Kind of has like a Job moment. And I think it's not only an idea that Judah has repented and has realized what has happened and seen what he's done to his own father, but also that God, in a sense, has sort of brought him full circle. He's replaced his two sons with two of his own. And now it's Judah. It's a redemption of Aaron of er and Onan. Right. Yeah. And that redemption ultimately leads to Messiah, which is. Ironically, Shua was now the oldest. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> Judah, and Judah, um, for reasons we don't know here, actually. The inheritance goes to Perez. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, sir. So, you know, one of the questions the sages ask is, you know, why do we, why, why does Parsha start with Yosef, and then we have this interlude with Judah? It's weird. And then it goes back to Yosef. <clears throat> and one of their answers is because, is because while Yosef was in Egypt, um, Hashem was bringing forth the light of Messiah. Ah. How, how so? Because this story um, describes the birth of Peretz and how that came about, but from whom Messiah ben David, that lineage comes from. And so, um, and it, there's some there's some interesting things. I mean, you know, when you get to that chapter 38, it says it was at that time and Yehuda went down from his brothers. And so, because uh, I'll say that that phrase, he went down, was like, he was lowering himself, like he was starting to maybe repent or be remorseful of what they had done to Yosef, and he starts to kind of withdraw. He goes down, as it were, to to you know to start to try to think about what's happened, and then of course you know he um, uh, you know he, he takes a wife and, he, and his three sons are born. The other thing that's interesting is verse seven. It says and and. And Ur, the firstborn of Yehuda, was evil in the eyes of, of Hashem. So that phrase should be a remez for some of us. Where, where else do we hear that phrase? Oh, we're the kings. What's that? The kings. The kings, but even earlier in Bereshit, where's another phrase that somebody had something to do with the eyes of a, in the eyes of Hashem? King. King. Okay, that's not the one I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of Noah. Right. Right. Noah found grace in the eyes of Hashem. Well, Noah and grace, the word Hebrew word hen, same same word, yeah. letters reversed. Yeah, the same thing here. Er reversed is Ra. <laughs> that's funny. Which nice. is evil. Nice. Which is evil. So Er was Ra in the eyes of Hashem. So you have that same sort of play in the Hebrew there. That's very cool. Which is kind of cool. Um, <clears throat> You know, Greg, the, uh, the sages also say that Judah was stepped away from the family, stepped away from his brothers, and as you said, he was going down, and like he had lost respect in their eyes, you know, for you know, the whole Joseph thing and whatnot. Uh, that didn't work out the way they had planned and so forth. Um, but we see that he comes back, and in the end, yeah. at the end of the story, in the next uh, parasha or two, um, he, he's redeemed himself and comes back up. It's a, it's a beautiful picture for redemption. Yeah, and when you think about going down, I mean, like, he's really going down. I mean, it says later in the story that he goes up to Timnah to, for geographical context here. So Galilee's up here, Jerusalem's kind of in the center, and then, like, way down here is a lot. Egypt's over here, right? Timnah is, like, 
halfway from Jerusalem to Egypt. Like, so he goes up to Timnah, that means he's even further south. So it's not just a matter of um, him going down in the sense of like respect or how he feels about himself or whatever. He has physically left the family. Mm -hmm. right. uh, and interestingly enough, has gone in the same direction as Joseph, which is kind of ironic. Yes, sir. Um, just to switch it up a little bit, also like uh, with the whole Judah Tamar story, is um, how Tamar um, responded when Judah laid down the judgment as far as bring her out and burn her. When they brought out that she was playing the harlot, she was pregnant and without a husband. Um, her response is, um, um, in this book is Rabbi Zele Peliskin, it's called Love Your Neighbor. I, I was getting it, but it just kind of helped out with anger and things like that, and patience and da da da. But it actually like quotes on different um, on the uh, Torah portions, and that was a surprise to me. Um, and so in here it states um, it states the verses, and then he states Rashi's comments. He says Rashi comments that Tamar did not want to publicly shame Yehuda, and therefore did not say, "By you I am with child," but by the man whose deeds are. Tamar thought to herself, "If he will confess by himself, let him confess." And if not, let them burn me, but let me not put him to shame. From here the Savior said, A person should rather have himself thrown into a fiery furnace than put his fellow man to shame in public. Now on that note, I thank you guys earlier, because I said the wrong blessing this morning. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And you guys didn't say anything. And I read this last night. I studied this last night. I was thinking of it the whole rest of the morning. You guys are awesome. That, that is a testament to your character. But, you know, for her not to put him to shame mm -hmm. and call out his name yeah. right. um, is a big testament her character. She's awesome. Well, you know, and he I mean, says, yeah. she's more righteous than us. Yeah, yeah. And to kind yeah. of pull that into our apostolic reading, I thought that was really interesting that it, uh, effectively her descendant, yeah. Joseph, right, yeah. is renowned for that very thing. When they say that Joseph is a righteous man, the very next thing they say is that he was going to put away Mary quietly yeah. so as not to shame her. Yeah. I mean, so, like, nice. like Joseph, the father of Yeshua, has essentially the same blood flowing through his veins. He's yeah. realizing that he has to protect Mary, even though when Mary, I mean, at this point, if, if his assumptions had been right, mm -hmm. he's been betrayed in a horrible way. Yeah. So it's like, and yet he still had that same level of, of humility and, mm -hmm. and respect for her, which is really impressive. Yes, sir. So <clears throat> there was an interesting uh, drush that I read on Tamar. Um, as, it, as it pertains to her being used by Hashem to bring forth Messiah, as it, as it were. So Tamar's name means date palm. And, and of course, a date palm is typically a picture or associated with righteousness and fruitfulness and so forth. Um, but uh, it, in, it shares the same roots as another Hebrew word, tum, tamara, which means like to exchange, um, to, to, to transfer or to exchange. But Chazal also say you, you can read it as two words, tam, tam mar, tam meaning like complete, mar being bitterness or bitter, mm. oh, okay. which is like a like to complete or to end bitterness, as it were. And they kind of see how in the story. 
you know, she was bitter in the sense that, you know, she had endured the death of two husbands, she was childless, and now, you know, now Yehuda was refusing to give her his third son. Don't know for sure why, but probably because he didn't want the same fate, Jinxed. you know, happening. Black to Widow. His only, his only remaining son, so, um, but whatever the reason, she's in this place of bitterness to the point where she, you know, she takes some action. And, you know, on the surface, we could say, you know, really the action sketch. she took was a little, you know, a little uncouth. It was a little, you know, but yet she's considered very righteous. And, um, and she brings about, you know, Tamar, the end of her bitterness through this action. And Ginsburg, Ginsburg looks at the, uh, looks at the, the spelling of her name and says, "Well, Mar Memresh has a gematria of two hundred forty, which equals the phrase, the biblical phrase, Ruach, Ruach Hashem." And, and they connect that to the uh, to the to the prophecy in Isaiah eleven. Uh, yeah, I think it's Isaiah eleven that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon. Uh, him referring to the to the Messiah, and so they connect that. That see, here's where, at least in in one connection of the Gematria, where she is um, destined to be one who brings about Messiah, and uh, and and then when you add the the Tav to get the complete spelling of her name, Tav is a Gematria of 400, so the full spelling of her name is 640. 400 has the, is equal to the another biblical phrase, Hashem, mer, Hashem merciful and compassionate, taken from the, the 13 attributes. Um, and so it was through Hashem's mercy and compassion uh, towards Tamar that she's used to bring forth Messiah, mm-hmm. of whom the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon. So they connect all these things. It's, you know, it's amazing how they get there, but mm-hmm. um, pretty cool. And I think it reminds me of what you had asked a few weeks ago. Yeshua telling his disciples, like, you know, no, no, as the scripture has said, Messiah will be given up and be treated badly by the Gentiles and so forth. And um, for those of you who are wondering where in the Old Tanakh it says that, uh, it's in the second chapter of Hezekiah. But um, no, the point is that that's exactly what the sages are doing. The sages of Israel have been going through the Tanakh, right. including the Yeshua's parasha, and going, this is kind of a weird story. Or there's some stuff here that seems odd. It's probably talking about Messiah, and they and they made all these connections. And what's really crazy about the whole thing is that when we read the apostolic writings, they were right. Like they didn't just pull this stuff out of thin air and then like and it's like, well, that was a nice idea. And it's not and it's not a later invention, you know, in like the, but like the apostolic writings. Sometimes you read them, and Paul will quote something, or Matthew especially will quote something, and you're like. Where is he getting where that? Is he getting where is that verse? And sometimes, half the time, it's a combination of a couple of verses, kind of like what you just did with the twisting of the, the combining of the gematria, twisting together, I should say. Um, and it's kind of like, it, it, it's really impressive that the sages did that. But then at the same time, they, I think, ironically enough, become the validity for the apostolic writings in saying that the apostolic writers were right, that they didn't make it up either. That this is a, this is a, there's a reason why we're saying that Messiah is going to do these things. Because it's in the Tanakh, and it is part of God's plan all along. So that's it. Good point. Very cool. Joshua, the, um, in case somebody's playing Bible trivia, 
over the uh, Hanukkah days, uh, the big question, uh, to whom was Joseph sold? <laughs> right? Oh, I, I just kind of oh please. Well, it's so confusing. It is? Right, so he's in the pit, and then it says the Ishmaelites are going by, and so Verse they decide to sell him. Oh, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, and then it's like, well, no, there were some Midianites. And then it says Verse he was sold to the Ishmaelites, and, and I noticed. And, and, the then, and then he ends up with the Egyptians, <laughs> right? So right. to whom? Yeah. So, yeah, he sold. Nice. Unless he sold twice. I noticed or three times. Sorry, he said, yeah, yeah. So the one trader who sold him to another. Yeah. It does seem very mysterious instead of. Because we always just understand the story. He's in the pit, and he sold to some spice traders, and he went to Egypt. Or as if they were Egyptians. Right. Like, yeah. Like, or yeah, he was sold to Egypt. Yeah, just that very simply. Right. But it seems a little confusing in the text. I yeah. Well, it's interesting in the who's who's involved because it's really quite fascinating if you think about who their fathers are. Because Ishmael comes from Ishmaelites, obviously come from Ishmael, whose father was Abraham. Ironically enough. That's also true about the Midianites. Their father was one of the sons of Keturah, which is even weirder because Midrashic tradition holds that Keturah is Hagar. So it's another son of Hagar. Her descendants end up being the two groups that take care that that intervene here with Joseph, which is really kind of funny because um, in a weird way they end up being saviors for Joseph. Like, Judah, I think, I believe that Judah's intent here was not to get rid of Joseph. I think he was trying to save his life. And that was the best idea he could come up with at the time. Um, and and so, in a way, these traitors intervene. Like, they're gonna let Joseph die in the pit. That's the plan. And these traitors come by, and Judah goes, ooh, 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 this is a bad idea. Ka-ching. How about we sell him to these guys? So, it's interesting that God uses... Descendants of Hagar, which if you think about it, it's almost like, it almost kind of feels like a mistake, right? Like that was like, whoops, Abraham jumped the gun a little bit there. It's fortunate he made that decision. But God uses his descendants, Abraham's descendants, to save Joseph. It's pretty cool. Yes, sir. What? And this is just complete speculation on my part, but could it be that really maybe the Ishmaelites and Midianites in this case are really used interchangeably? Because they're all kind of... How are you going to tell them apart anyway? They're all kind of... <laughs> they all look the same. They're all the same. They're all cousins and intermarried and maybe it's just sort Funky of... turbans. And there may have been actually the group may have been both Midianites well, and right, Ishmaelites in the same group. group right. In the same caravan or whatever. But they, but they didn't have signs, you know. <laughs> they are also called Midianites in Great Six. The Midianites sold him to Egypt. There you go. Oh, I have so, Midianites there as well. Not in my country. Not in your Bible. <laughs> but I think that that's one of the things that, um, this is a good question, because I think that one of the things about the uh, uh, scriptures is that I think that some of those weird inconsistencies, the questions, I don't understand, um, the, the critics would always use those to argue this is obviously why this is not true. Uh, clearly, we had at least two different writers that wrote this passage, and one of them was obviously a woman, because, you know, you know they had to throw that in there. Um, we don't know why, but anyway. But the point is, though, that, like, instead of being, of playing it cheap and being like, well, this is a question that obviously the writers got confused, um, it's like, well, if they were blending two stories together, what kind of 
morons decide to make it confusing. It's like the like, Gospels. Yeah. But actually, that's, that's, what, that's what we're going with. That this is actually, instead, the opposite is true. This is a, a red light sign outside of the motel saying vacancy. This is saying, read this. Check this out. This is weird. Why is this weird? Maybe you should look into this. So, you know, whatever insight you might find, there's something there. And I think that's exactly what's going on in the Gospels, too. Were there two demon, demoniacs? Were there one? Were there, yes. Was there a, a donkey and a cult or just a cult? Yes. You know, it's yeah. like, hey, why is it that Matthew always seems to see double, but all the other gospel writers only see one? Which is weird, but it's true. Oddly enough, all the double ones are in Matthew. I don't get that. Anyway, the point is that, rat, but the funny part is the same critics, especially, and this is not to critique our, our Jewish brothers in general, but in this area, they're wrong. You get those same critics of the gospels from people whose, whose scriptures are the same way. This is the way that God speaks. Sometimes it's confusing. I believe it's on purpose. God's trying to highlight things and get you to ask those questions. Whereas the Book of Mormon has no discrepancies. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, we, we read, you read a book, and it's supposed to make sense. If you have an author who's trying to fake people out, why would you put things into race questions? It doesn't make any sense, really. Except that Hashem has concealed himself. Right. The, so right. He's, asking, he's trying to lead you to ask questions as part of the search. Right. He's trying to get you to dig, get you to look in. So something interesting. Twenty pieces of silver is what they sold him for, which is the amount in shekels that you would redeem a firstborn. Oh wow, that's cool. And since there's ten brothers, they would split the money equally, one of the things. So each one gets two pieces, which in the future would be the two pieces of silver every male is required to give annually. To temple upkeep. <laughs> that's really cool. Wow. That's, and that's the sages make the point. That why is it two shekels? To repay for what you did. That's very cool. I like that. And, and you're an accountant too, right? Yes. <laughs> so, so there's inflation from 20 shekels to 30 pieces of silver, right? <laughs> Maybe. I was kind of wondering if there was some similarities between that and this. Because we're at the sale of Yeshua right. now in our studies yeah. out on Tuesday night. And I was thinking, like, well, so he should have gave himself up willingly. Like, right. he had lots of macho men with him. They could have intervened. One tribe, he said, no, this is it's fine. And I was kind of thinking the same way with Joseph, too, because it's like, all he would have needed to say is, like, these idiots are my brothers. Like, I'm not, like, some random guy. Like, he could have, like, said, <laughs> and they would have probably, like, been like, okay, this is a little too weird. We're not buying it. <laughs> and he was yeah. probably, like, just super quiet and just, like, totally let them do everything to him. say, like, a, like a sheep would say. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's interesting you like mentioned. Isaac. Okay. You opened up. Like, like Isaac, who was quiet when his father was stuck with That's right. 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 Um, I was going to say that it's interesting that you mentioned the sale. The sale. Um, we can always come back to the Parsha, but I was thinking about the Haftarah. And this ref gets referenced. The reason why we had the Haftarah for this passage is because God specifically calls out having sold a righteous man for silver. Yeah. And then they follow up by saying in a destitute one for the sake of a pair of shoes, which is the other tradition, is that the amount of money that they sold Joseph for was enough for each of them to have a new pair of shoes, something to that effect. So that's like, it's a play off of that. What's really intriguing, of course, is that, you're, as you point out, the, the sale is considered like a perpetual stain on the people of Israel. It is not just simply like those brothers erred, bad idea, oops, we were overzealous, we made a bad call. But it's like they would later on, um, it would become not only a perpetual stain in Judaism's mind, but even used against them. Uh, that's the whole idea of the ten martyrs 
uh, remember correctly, comes up later, like, the Romans are looking and going, well, we have to slaughter all of you because you sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. You know, yeah. the bad guys always come with ridiculous excuses. But the point is, though, that, like, I think God kind of takes a note here, which is intriguing because of the fact that um, that's exactly what's happened to Yeshua. You know, he is also then sold, and in a way, it is kind of like a perpetual stain, and the only way it can be redeemed is when the people of Israel treat Yeshua the same way that Jacob treated the loss of Joseph. That morning, he says, my son, I mean, you get that, you get, I mean, as I'm reading through it this week, I'm thinking about that passage in Zechariah where you will weep for him as one weeps for his only son because that's how Joseph, or Jacob, weeped, wept for Joseph. And only when the people of Israel as a group, those ten brothers' descendants, do the same for the person, the other, the Ben Joseph, then there'll be that redemption. Bereshit uh, Rabbah, section 85, about this portion, Hazal actually recite that exact scripture from Zechariah as, as a response to, uh, as a connection to Messiah ben Yosef and, um, and the, the, the reaction that the nation will have when Messiah ben Yosef, you know, um, dies, right? Hmm. And they connect. They actually connected with this portion, that exact same passage. So very cool. They, it's just amazing. To, I mean, they have it all pieced right. together. Right. And they have yet, all. and yet, they yeah, and, like, and yet they're they're it, blind. It's but, blind. but but the fact that Yeshua was sent by the Father to check on his on the on, on his brothers, they rejected him. They sold him for silver, turned him over to the nations. Right. right. Which might be another reason why there's two. Um, in the plural, the nations. <laughs> turned him over to the nations. And then, and then, you know, and then he's, he, he's killed and then elevated. You know, and now he, now the nations recognize him. They don't, they don't, uh, the nations don't understand his true essence in many cases, Renamed. but they recognize his authority, right? and yet his brothers don't, just like in the story. It's just yeah, amazing. it's amazing. Can't yeah. Stuff up. It's so cool that like Potiphar says, like, he knew that Hashem was with this guy. It's like, he knows Hashem? Yeah. How, that's really cool. Right. <laughs> it's like the random Egyptian. <laughs> yeah, and then they emphasize throughout the passage that Potiphar, the Egyptian, like, in case you forgot that. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. he recognized the favor of God in this man. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It must have been very so does the So does the jailer. Mm -hmm. Same thing. Speaking of Potiphar, um, another cool little thing. Potiphar's wife is never mentioned by name. She just she's just called the wife oh, of, yeah. of Potiphar, the wife of the master. I think it's Eshet Adonav. I think it's yeah. the Hebrew. And uh, Rob Ginsburg points out that the gematria of that of that Eshet Adonav equals the sum of the gematria for the four mothers: Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, as if to say. She is the antithesis ah. of all the righteousness of the Jewish mothers. The 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 wife of Potiphar is like the entire antithesis of all four of them together. Like she's the anti patriarch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's like she's bad news. She's bad news. Yeah. That's pretty funny. 
interesting. Um, and thinking about, uh, and I guess we can always go back to Parsha, but I think about the Haftar here. I, one thing that stood out to me is that not about math, you know, Gematria, the math is weird in the, in the Haftar. Because Hashem says, for three sins, I would, you know, should not exact retribution for four. And then he proceeds to list like eight. And it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And it's interesting, um, as I'm reading through these, that got me to like try to add them up and try to conjoin them because they have some parallels. And as I was looking at them all, I realized that actually these are weird sins to be like, that's it, I'm done with you. I'm sending you out and I'm punishing you because I love you. I have to punish you because this is just too much. And what's missing in this passage is the like, child sacrifice and... You know, all I mean, they, they mentioned immorality, kind of, but in a weird way. Like, where's the, you know, where's murder? You know, where are some of the like really, you know, the really bad sins that we are so used to seeing? And instead, what you get here is all of these are mistreating the poor or the weak. All of them involve a lack of justice. The first one he mentions having sold a righteous man for silver, destitute one for the sake of a pair of shoes. That is a, that is kidnapping. It's a capital offense if you sell them. But then on top of that, it's mistreating a weak person. You have power over them. The next one is those who yearn for the earth, the dust of the earth to be upon the head of the poor, so twi hurting the poor, who twist the way of the humble. Again, mis uh, taking advantage of the weak. And then even the one with the, the immorality one deals with two men and one woman, so she's clearly the weaker party in that story. Uh, overwhelming, I think so. And then the last one, I thought this was really interesting. He mentions idolatry, but it's not the main sin. The main sin is they recline on garments held as security, which is, again, mistreating the poor. Uh, it has to do with debt, basically. And then also it says, right next to every altar, and they drink wine bought with fines, and then the commentary adds, they're unjustly levied fines in the temple of their gods. So what's interesting is, I didn't, I hadn't looked at the commentary, so I was looking at it today and realizing that actually the sages pick up on this. They go, this is weird. What are they talking about? So he says, the three, God forbear, despite the three cardinal sins, so they're, they're taking it as not this list. But the three sins are not in the list. The three cardinal sins of idolatry, adultery, and murder. But there was a fourth sin that burst his endurance, as it were. The fourth was the persecution of the poor and the greed that caused the rich and powerful to take advantage. So really, if you think about it, what if you read this passage, the all that long list was one sin. It's not a list of four. It is the fourth. It is the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak, but it's not a straw. It's the worst one. Like, it's hard to even imagine that. Like, the lack of justice and mistreating the poor was worse than murder in God's eyes. So when we get, I mean, that ultimately is why God tells them, I'm going to send you into exile. I'm going to wipe you out, like not all of you, but a lot of you because of the sin. And it's like, we think about the, 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 the first exile. The first exile is tied so much to idolatry. It's only 70 years. Right. The second exile has been two, almost 2,000 years and it was linked to, to baseless hatred. God's, feelings about how we treat each other is so much more significant than even the things that we think are really bad, like murder or adultery. I don't know, to me that just really stood out this week and thinking, like, whoa, like, what am I doing about, like, I'm walking past the guy, he asked me for money, and I don't, uh, don't be bothered right now. You know, like, those types of things, like, God takes that more seriously in some ways than he does the, the really bad stuff. Yes, sir? Well, Yeshua's ministry, that's exactly the focus. The focus was always on the poor and the weak and those who were oppressing them. Right. And that's, his, that's really, in large part, what he just really rips into the religious leaders of the day about. He's not critiquing them. I mean, sometimes he's critiquing them for, um, for things they misunderstood. 
like the whole swearing by the altar to swearing with. But most of his critiques have to do with justice. It's like you devour widows' houses. He talks about not honoring their father and mother, but it's not because of not honoring them in the general sense, but he's like, you don't take care of them. Because in that time period, it, once you, you didn't have social security, you know, people get Still older. Don't. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. don't now either. Yeah, but as people get older, they need the younger people to take care of them. And so, like, Messiah is telling the Pharisees, you've used the commandments of God to undo the commandments of God. You've used the commandments of men to undo the commandments of God. And specifically is highlighting their lack of justice. And that's what he mentions over and over again. Over and over again, he mentions you don't get the three things, faith, mercy, and justice. Mm -hmm. So you see that time and time again. And even with his own reaction to disciples, and Nehemiah was mentioning earlier about not shaming your shaming those uh, in public. And I really feel like that's most of what Yeshua was mad at the, the Pharisees when they would critique his disciples. It wasn't so much that they were wrong. I mean, half the time it almost feels like Messiah doesn't really, he kind of defends them, but kind of in a weird way. He's not like, well, you're, you, know, you don't understand. That's not what God meant. He almost always uses an example almost to kind of say, it's really not that big of a deal. Like there's a reason for it. There's an, ex there's an exemption for it or whatever. But it's almost like Yeshua's critiques when he does actually call out what they're doing wrong, he seems to focus on, but if you understood, I desired mercy and not sacrifice. It's like his focus is always on how they're treating their fellow Jews. I don't know, it just really stood out to me this year. That wasn't meant to end the conversation. Mm. <laughs> I'm just thinking relationship. Yeah. Is, um, I think throughout scripture we see Messiah always leaning toward relationship between us and his father. But between each other. Right, well that's what First John is, right? I mean, it's like, you say you love God, but you don't love your neighbor. This can't happen. That's James, too. You know, so that idea, and it's funny because I mean, I walking around uptown, you get exposed to, like, the poor so much more than you would out here, and it's so easy to want to tell somebody, be warm and full, you know, God bless you, and then, like, not give them anything for that. And, and thinking about, um, that whole concept, you just, you can see, like, kind of the underside of the city and realizing that, like, there are a lot of people who don't have nice warm houses to come home to and, you know, good food to eat. And it's like, wow, like that, and like, and God sees that and he feels that. And it's not so much that I don't believe in, like, economic equality and everyone, you know, all the stuff, the communism kind of concept, <laughs> because it's not the way that God designs it either. God doesn't want a system to take care of these people. He wants us to take care of these people. The sages go so far as to say that when you give money to the poor, you actually do God's work for him. And so when they, they talk well, about... The master said, if you, right. if you take care of these poor people, you take care of me. You take care of me. And so the sages are arguing that like when you help a poor person eat, you're doing God's job. He's the one who feeds the poor. But when you feed the poor, you're actually doing it for him. So to the extent that it says that... Um, the, the, the borrower is servant to the lender. And they say, they actually apply that to Hashem, which is kind of like, well, I wouldn't do that, but they did. And they say the idea, like, when you give money to the poor, you effectively make God your debtor because you've given money for his work. This is his, as it were, his task, but you've chosen to do it. And so God's promise, he must reward you because that is the way that it works. Anyway, that is the law before us. Right, exactly. And that's Yeshua's comment. Um, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy when he says that. 
Uh, it's just it's a lot to think about, especially this time of year. You know, you see people, and it's not just the poor. It can be a lot of different things, even just treating each other better. But yeah, well, I mean, Shiro mentions like the sick. You yeah. Know, he mentions, yeah, yeah. Visiting the sick. Yeah. And thinking about like what that means. Um, I was talking to a guy just recently, and he uh, he had said that he had been a um, he gotten cleaned up from drugs. And then just his life was so depressed. He didn't really have God in his life because he just really felt like nothing. It's like, so I'm clean, but my life is terrible. So why, what's the reason for it all? Tries to commit suicide, tries to kill himself, and ends up going to the hospital. And he said it was the weirdest thing. All the people from like his church, whatever, people he didn't even know came to the hospital to like pray for him. He miraculously makes recovery. He's like on the brink of death. He makes it through and ends up like, it's like out of that experience, basically sort of really um, starts to read the Bible for the first time kind of gets led into a life of God, and now he heads up a charity um, that really tries to take care of people on the streets and that kind of thing. And that idea was kind of cool, thinking about, he, but he specifically mentioned, like, these random people came to his hospital bed to pray for him. And, you know, I think that that's another thing. Yeah, you're right, there's many things in that list that are there. Um, and it's interesting, of course, in Hashem, in, in, this, in this Haftarah, he, uh, his response, I think it's so interesting. He says that... Um, when he's talking to them about the people, he says that only you have I loved of all the families of the earth. Therefore will I recall upon you all your iniquities. And I think that, that reminds me of the apostolic writings as well. When we get that um, judgment begins at the house of God. And Hebrews talks about this idea, like basically if you're not, if you're getting away with sin, <laughs> that means you're not a child because the, only the children get punished. And, uh, and it definitely seems to be the issue here. Like God is basically saying, I love you too much to not punish you for what you've done wrong. Which in light of, you know, what happened yesterday is maybe a little scary. Actually, it might be scarier if we don't get punished for that because it's like, <laughs> you're not my people. <laughs> I didn't do it. I know, right? But if we quickly repent, he may withhold his hand of wrath. He may. And I, but that's the thing, is you look at the story of the nations, I think if we talked about this before, if you look at the judgment of God, judgment of God and his people is always about repentance. He wants them to change. 26 days. Right, exactly. He's always about repentance. It's all about changing. But his, but he doesn't judge the nations until the end, because there's only one round of judgment for them. They have a final judgment, and it's over. The rest of the time, it's like it almost feels kind of like the uh, the whole all the Canaanite tribes, right? The reason why Joseph goes down to Egypt is because God has a prophecy to fulfill. They have to be in slavery for centuries, but why? It specifically mentions that the sin of the Canaanites had not been fulfilled. God's giving them literally hundreds of years to repent. But when they don't, there's no second chance. It's over. So, yeah. That turned really heavy. I feel kind of bad now. I feel like I'm just kind of just like a clown in the room. Bible's a downer sometimes. <laughs> I think uh, if you want to jump ahead a little bit. To, uh, to the dreams. Uh -huh. Joseph is interpreting dreams. I just always find it cool. Maybe I just see these things because, you know. That's I'm, your name? That's my name. And you're good looking. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's interesting that uh, the father of my Lord is not a talkative man. Mm. Everything seems to happen in dreams. <laughs> and here, Notoriety is brought because of his ability to interpret dreams. Mm -hmm. So I just—it's uh, hard—it's hard for me to overlook that. You know, um, I, I can't help but feel sorry for the 
to the baker. Mm. When he yeah. hears the interpretation of the comparison. great. It's, it's gonna be great. Give me one like that. <laughs> and it doesn't work out. It doesn't work out. Good. Yeah. Yeah, actually. Yeah. His mouth had, must have been just hanging open. It's like, really? Stick with wine, not cake. Okay, but you know what's really interesting? That's the point. It's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of an interesting thought, though. I had never thought of it. That reading, literally, we're up there reading it, and we're looking at it and going, wait a minute, that's weird. So Joseph, Joseph's response to the question is kind of an odd one. They go, there's no one to interpret our dreams. And Joseph says, don't interpretations belong to God? Sure. Tell, Tell me. <laughs> like, shouldn't it be like, let's get on our knees and pray? But instead, he's like, Tell me. Well, I think the reason is because he's saying you don't need a special interpreter. God can interpret. He can choose to use me, maybe, or not. Well, that's but, what he know. said to Pharaoh later. Right. God is the one who interprets. Yeah. What's interesting is, what I think if this stood out to me this time as we're reading it, the wine, the steward, is the one who jumps on that, and he gets the good interpretation. The baker specifically says he saw the interpretation of the stewards was good, mm. and then he says his. And I think there's a certain degree of like initiative here. You know, the, 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 the cupbearer, he almost acts in faith. Joseph says, doesn't God interpret dreams? Tell me. And the cupbearer goes, okay, oh, sure. I'll Here tell you. Let's see what happens. And all, and the baker holds out. He waits to see what happens. And his response is Wait, not so good. Good interpretation. I should give this a shot. Let's see what happens. Actually, right? that's consistent with scripture. Because you know, if, we go to, if we go to necromancers or, or fortune tellers or whatever else, or you know, the whole notion of you know, playing luck, right. you know, it's, it's actually it's the antithesis of Asking and receiving Amen. from God. Amen. Right. Well, and it also reminds me of um, of the uh, the almost like the the maidens who have their lamps and stuff. You know, the wise have the oil, the foolish don't. And it's like every time the wicked wait, because they're the ones who wait. They're the ones who are like, I'm not gonna. I've heard that you or somebody who doesn't who, who takes Big and mistake. does sows reaps where you do not sow. So I just held on to the coin and I didn't do anything with it. And it's like that never works. The, the waiting to see what happens that's not faith. That's um, you know that's hedging your bets. That's guessing maybe, but it's definitely not faith. Whereas the steward acts almost on a, faith, a level of faith here, and I feel like I think God rewards him for that. Mm -hmm. I really think that the reason why he's because it says specifically that it went according to the interpretation. It almost acts as though if the interpretation had been different, the result would have been different. Rather than the prophecy predicting the future, it's like it determined the future, which is not which didn't. Which, if you think about the fact that God's in charge of the whole thing, that, that, that kind of makes sense. Otherwise, you have to think of like time in a circle. But you know, but otherwise, it's a. Uh, that's not time in a circle. That's just the only way we can think about it. So the idea being that like, um, but it's that there's not a cause and effect. It's all going to happen or it's not going to happen. But anyway, so in this idea, I think that um, the steward is the one who jumps forward and God rewards him. Yeah, uh, Mr. Upham had raised his hand. So there's a midrash that. The, um, the the first servant, the cupbearer, the, the, the cup the cupbearer, that that he actually Midrash says he actually really left the prison completely intending to immediately tell Pharaoh about Joseph. Uh, in fact, he the the Midrash goes on to say that he he did he was doing certain things so that he wouldn't forget, like he tied a, a string around his around his wrist or whatever so that he, when he would see the string he would remember to tell and the, and the angel Story would come and loosen the string and it would fall off and he would forget right or it, and, and it was the midrash the point the midrash is making is that um, is that 
they kind of ding Yosef a little bit here because yeah. it's as though Yosef was relying on the cupbearer rather than God to, to, to do him a favor as yeah. opposed to continuing to keep his, his faith focused on Hashem. So Hashem makes the cupbearer forget intentionally mm. until, and I can't believe it actually says how much time goes by, but I, I think it's, it's a year. Think, it's, yeah. yeah, it's like a year or two. It's like, like another two years, actually, yeah. I think it is. All right, I'll remind you. So, nice. so by the end of the two years, you know, Yosef is like, I'm, 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 I'm still over with. I'm, just, I'm here, I'm going to die here. And, you know. and it was until he reached that point where his only hope was in God that then Hashem allows the cupbearer to remember Yosef. But and so it's kind of a neat drop. It's important to recognize also that it wasn't that the cupbearer went, oh, darn, I forgot. Right. No, it's actually God who steps in, right. and God gives Pharaoh a right. dream. Yeah. And then the cupbearer is like, dream. Where am I Pharaoh. saying oh, I yeah. see, yeah, I see this. I see Wait, wait, I know how it ends. I know how it ends. Well, I can't hear it read all this about Joseph without thinking about Daniel. Because there's so many parallels yes. to mm -hmm. to Daniel and who he was and how he saw dreams and, and he said the same thing. It's, it's not I who did the dream, God does the dream. And Daniel was was never one to use it for his own. It was only when he was called upon to, to interpret the dreams and, and to make it known. And he kept being put in places where the interpretations were important. And even, you know, with uh, Belshazzar and the writing on the wall. Somebody remembered that years before. Mm -hmm. It was this guy. And it was his wife, I think, that remembered years before this guy had new dreams and, and you know call him. So I think that that the righteous are given opportunities, mm -hmm. um, and and yet a part of all of that is always giving the glory back to God. Right, and I think that's one thing that we have to keep in mind. I mentioned this thing last year, but like Joseph, Yosef, Yeshua's father, is a righteous man you don't get those levels of prophecy unless you are a very righteous dude like the idea of dreams we see this with moshe god tells moses i speak to you face to face to speak to all the other prophets in, in dreams so the idea is that like that's standard fare like joseph is a prophet that's pretty cool and it's not just once it happens to him twice like he's one of the only people in all of the bible that gets uh, that's not, you know, you're, he doesn't have a book named after him that gets multiple dreams sure. from God. Like, that's a big deal. It's also a cool name. It's, you know, you rarely oh, get yeah, right. how, many, how many righteous guys you have that are named after another righteous guy with the same name? <laughs> Only one. Thank you very much. <laughs> how many Daniels? One Daniel. How many Elijahs? One Elijah. But yeah, it's a Joseph. He, I think that um, not only is Joseph, the, old, the original Joseph, a righteous man, but also the one the father of Yeshua is. And I think that's cool because, again, I mean, I've heard all sorts of weird stuff about Joseph. He was an absentee dad and all of that. People basically just slandering him because they don't know what is wrong with him. He just kind of disappears. More likely, I think the story is that he probably was a little old. I mean, I, to me, if you look, think about it, what it most reminds me of is the kind of tragic midrash surrounding um, Ruth and Boaz. Boaz is an old man. Ruth marries him. They get, they have a child, and then he's gone he's because because he dies. He's an He's a great man, and he's he, out of the way. And it almost kind of feels like that. It's like Joseph does what he's supposed to do. They bring Yeshua back, 
and then we're done with it. That Joseph's story ends sometime around then. And maybe he had six more kids with with Mary because they have he has all his brothers and sisters. But um, either way, he's not. Yeah. Either way, he kind of, he's out of the picture. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean he's not righteous because that's exactly what the Boaz, which is which again is another allusion to Messiah, David. You know all of that. One other, uh, one other thing we should see here is, is uh, Paul's admonition to us in the apostolic writings twice. Um, his, I think his, his main admonition in uh, 1 Corinthians 16 to men is that they should stand up, be counted, and quit themselves like men. Um, no, I, not quit, girl, your loins. Quit, Sorry. King James, right. right. Um, but from a, you know, a Second Amendment... Self, yeah, self, uh, self-defense kind of thing, you know, that stand your ground and be able to defend your family and so forth. I, I get that, and I'm, I'm into that. And yet, Paul twice makes it clear that we need to flee immorality. Right, which Joseph and does. I Literally, this is where he gets it. Right, you know, it's like he even left the cloak. It's just, I got to get out of here. Keep it. I don't want it. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Do, do with it what you will, but I'm out of here. <laughs> he probably thought he was in trouble when he walked in and saw nobody else around and yeah. knew she was there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, Threw the coat in her face. Get out of here. <laughs> That's a pretty evil woman who uses what a guy flees from her yeah. to bring wow. charges against her. It's interesting. I think that I, I read, I saw a movie, I think, one time about this, and in the film, they, the film depiction, they showed, it's just that Potiphar was angry. Rather than showing him angry at Joseph, they show him mad at his wife, wife yeah. Yeah. which is very possible. Sure, I can totally see that because he does treat Joseph remarkably well. That he puts him in the king's prison, doesn't put him to death, doesn't put him to well, death, well, and apparently the king's prison is in his house. Yeah, which is weird but yeah. interesting. Yeah, I, I think you're right about the about who he's mad at. Yeah, because he knows you just strangled the golden goose. Are you uh, nuts? Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I I think that our uh, if you look at the word. For butcher, I didn't think that was our, our verse. The translation we were reading from Chamberlain of the butchers. Chamberlain of the butchers. Uh, so the whole idea of the butcher is executioner, is you know that that kind of thing. This, not somebody this was not a farming area. You know, this is this is a man who butchers men. This is this is where you put the people that are going to be killed. And yeah. yet he's in charge, and as Rick said, he doesn't kill him. Right. He puts. He, he ends up in charge of another part of Potiphar's place. Right, which is so interesting that again, this goes back to what I was talking about with the kids. The idea that like that that, first, that passage shows up and over and over again that Hashem was with Joseph, and like you do see it in those things where like of, of all people to really potentially upset the guy who executes people is probably not the first one you want to upset, but and yet he doesn't kill Joseph, and so while and the situation itself looks like God's not here. It's actually screaming very loudly that God is in charge. Yeah. And it re- reminds me so much of the whole like Queen Esther story, where the whole way through the story, you kind of get this feeling like everything is going badly and falling out of control, and yet there's enough like, like coincidences that make you think that, well, God must have a plan here, and then of course it ends up beautifully. Yeah. And the gallows were used well. <laughs> right. But that's a different holiday. <laughs> when you said Esther. I know, right? I did. Did, did anybody think? If, I mean, if, I read ahead. Sorry. Oops. To, the, to next week's deal, but you know, 
Spoiler. Yeah, it was a cliffhanger, right? Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. But when they call Joseph out of the prison that we're reading about this week uh, in order to interpret the dreams, which he's already known for, uh, he, they have to shave him and clean him up. Mm. And based on our study on Tuesday nights, I was just thinking about the the whole possible Nazarite thing, and it's, I'm not saying that Joseph took a Nazarite vow, but he's almost in a Nazarite-type environment, you know, you're not getting haircuts, you're certainly not getting any wine, you know, that kind of thing. And Probably you get the wine cup there. Yeah, right? So, anyway, just uh, something to think about. So. Yeah. So. Isn't it the example of the practicality of that Holocaust? Some men have to not be in the loan. Right. Yeah. Woman, how smart that is, because it so easily becomes like he said, she said. Okay, you don't really shorts. know. <laughs> right, she has a story, he has a story. Yeah. Raise your pants. Um, I, yeah. I really didn't run away from her. I can explain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can explain. Yeah, that's true. It's not an Actually, it's not worth explaining. Yeah. <laughs> Throw me in jail. A lot of the men, a lot of the men on Tuesday nights do, do make sure that they're not alone with a woman. The, uh, age. In the in this particular passage as well, I think that like Paul's admonition to flee morality, I think it's great that Joseph literally does that. Um, because I mean, the thing is, one of the things the sages say in their commentary on this whole passage, they say that that like Joseph was under severe temptation, and he's like really thinking about giving in and it's only they say a, he saw a vision of his father and that was like whoa <laughs> right gotta do the right thing but if you think about it it kind of reminds me also that um the story of the guy who trips on a tzitzit he's playing something immoral and, he, and he's going up to do it he like he smack his tzitzit smack him in the face <laughs> and so he stops and the woman he's with is so surprised by his action that she ends up converting to Judaism. Mm -hmm. And they get married. And they get married, legitimately. Mm -hmm. You know? And, um... Yeah, right. And then, but see, no, but I think that that's like... But the idea, though, that like you have the tzitzit and you have... Um, is, is because God understands that sin is oftentimes a slippery slope, which is, which is the idea that it, you go downhill. It's like, so having those little roadblocks along the way, those things to stop you, because otherwise you have to basically be like, Joseph, and run away. Because <coughs> as soon as like, you start feeling that tug, it's, it's almost too late already. Like, get out. <laughs> it's weird, though, the story of Judah was actually dependent upon him giving in to temptation. Know, right? yeah. It's like the opposite. It is kind of weird. Like, somehow she knew that would or I, it, that also reminded me a little bit of Esther because of just how it seemed, it felt so orchestrated. Yeah, like it was like all actors that like yeah. all played a certain part. I mean, the chances of all that actually taking place that way is like zero. But Hashem orchestrated the whole thing. Should we? Sh it proves that we should keep the commandments, but not necessarily follow examples. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do not try to replicate this and think it will work. Don't try this at home. Yes, sir. Um, this is a little bit. This is it's something I kind of want to share with somebody, um, because especially like we're in this uh, season of Hanukkah, um, it's from the book of uh, Fourth Maccabees. Um, Love that there's a, book. There's a couple of places 
in this in this particular story um, that's really pretty awesome. I'll touch like two two little verses over here, but the main point is at the end of it. It's about this old uh, priest, Eleazar, and Antiochus. So in chapter five it says, the tired Antiochus, therefore, sitting in public state with his assessors upon a certain lofty place, with his armed troops standing in a circle around him, commanded his spear bearers to seize every one of the Ibrim, and to compel them to taste swine's flesh and things offered to idols. And should any of them be unwilling to eat the accursed food, they were to be tortured on the wheel, and so killed. And when many had been seized, the foremost man of the assembly, a Hebrew by the name of Eleazar, a priest by family, by profession a lawyer, and advanced in years, and for this reason, known to many of the king's followers, were brought near to him. And Antiochus, seeing him, said, I would counsel you, old man, before your tortures begin, to taste the swine's flesh and save your life. For I feel respect for your age and hoary head, which since you have had so long, you appear to me to be no philosopher in retaining the superstition of the Yapodim. For wherefore, since nature has conferred upon you the most excellent flesh of this animal, do you loathe it? It seems senseless not to enjoy what is pleasant, yet not disgraceful, and from notions of sinfulness to reject the boons of nature. And you will be acting, I think, still more senseless, senselessly if you follow vain conceits about the truth. And you will, moreover, be despising me to your own punishment. Will you not awake from your trifling philosophy? So then, a little ways down, Eleazar is responding to him. And so he says, uh, what does he say? Let's see here. That sounds oddly like some of the Christian arguments mm -hmm. about what he says. But you deride our philosophy as though we lived irrationally in it. Yet it instructs us in temperance so that we are superior to all pleasures and lusts. And it exercises us in manliness, Joseph, <laughs> so that we cheerfully undergo every grievance. And it instructs us in justice so that in all our dealings we render what is due. And it teaches us piety so that we worship the one and only Elohim becomingly. Wherefore, it is that we eat not the unclean. For believing that the Torah was established by Elohim, we are convinced that the creator of the world in giving his Torah sympathizes with our nature. Mm. Wow. Those things which are convenient to our souls, he has directed us to eat. But those things which are repugnant to them, he has interdicted. But, tyrant-like, you not only force us to break the Torah, but also to eat, that you may ridicule us as, as we thus profanely eat. But you shall not have this cause of laughter against me, nor will I transgress the sacred oaths of my forefathers that kept the Torah. No, not if you pluck out my eyes and consume my entrails. I am not so old and void of manliness, but that my rational powers are useful in defense of my faith. So later in yeah in, in six right is is like is awesome like 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 shows like Mashiach to me in six uh, they're about to kill him and so I didn't read all the tortures they did to him but they're about to kill him now so and Eliezer as though the as though the advice more painfully tortured him cried out let not us who are children of Abraham be so evil advised as by giving way to make use of an unbecoming pretense, for it were irrational, if having lived up to an old age in all truth, and having scrupulously guarded our character for it, we should now turn back, and ourselves should become a pattern of impiety to the young, 
as being an example of pollution eating. It would be disgraceful if we should live on some short time and that scorned by all men for cowardice and be condemned by the tyrant for unmanliness by not contending to the death for our divine Torah. Wherefore do you, O children of Abraham, die nobly for your faith? You spear bearers of the tyrant, why do you linger? Beholding him so high-minded against misery and not changing at their pity, they led him to the fire. Then with their wickedly contrived instruments, they burned him on the fire and poured stinking fluids into his nostrils. And he, being at length burnt down to the bones and about to expire, raised his eyes, Elohim, and said, You know, O Elohim, that when I might have been saved, I am slain for the sake of the Torah by tortures of fire. Be merciful to your people and be satisfied with the punishment of me on their account. Let my blood be a purification for them and take my life in recompense for theirs. Thus speaking, the righteous man departed, noble in his torments, and even to the agonies of death, resistant in his reasoning for the sake of the Torah. I felt like, man, that's like, that is that, like, when Hanukkah comes around now, since I've discovered that, uh, I, that never strays from my mind. And, and that makes me feel that Yeshua felt that way. Amen. You know, and, and, and he had that moment of weakness with the prayer in the garden. You know, you know, I, like he couldn't take it. He was crying. Yeah. And then he said, but let your will be done. And he knew what he had to undergo. And after that, he was a soldier for it. Amen. He even stopped uh, Peter from reacting like a zealot yeah. for it. He's like, this, this is what I've been telling you about. You know, this, this has to come to pass. Yeah. He called him an adversary. Like, you, like if this doesn't happen, right, then, then what I came here for, what my mission here for, won't yeah, you won't get it. You will not get it. That, that, that re relationship with the Father, that redemption, will not happen unless this happens. Amen. And man. Yeah. Battle for you, brother. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, anyway. Wow. Yeah. That was a pretty awesome note. I'm not going to try to we should stop. stop. <laughs> we should stop with that. Um, it, uh, Don't forget to light the candle today. Yeah, exactly. Make sure you light that candle tonight in honor of all the amazing men. That's right. Ran behind us. Um, sir, if you just close us out oh, in prayer. Man. Father God, would you find us faithful? Would you find us willing to stand? I pray, Lord, as uh, Hanukkah is upon us that we would rededicate ourselves, that we would encourage and strengthen other believers in Messiah Yeshua to forsake syncretism, to stand alone, to believe and obey the Torah, and to stand as a shining light of the love which you've shown to us. Help us, Father. Grant us courage and tenacity as those around us seek to undermine cause us distress. Father, we pray for our uh, soon-to-be-inaugurated president. Pray, Father, that you would uh, find this country as a whole more faithful to your people and to your word. And Father, over these next eight days, you would find us shining the light of the Hanukkah outwardly, that we might influence others to keep, to know, and to love the Torah. And all God's people say. Amen. God bless you, folks. Thank you for coming.
What's your lamb? Uh, it's a holy lamb. This is the symbol of the uh, like all the books that were like taken out.